reported live. Hello, this is, I'm sorry, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 10th, 2015, and we will be presenting the 22nd and final segment of our presentation and analysis of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lives, written in 1543. <clears throat> we won't be done with Martin Luther tonight, but we will be done, praise Yahweh, with this essay, this particular essay. I just wanted to say before I started that, um, well, well, there is an event calendar at Christagenia. It's under events on the top menu bar. And and sometimes I do get the chance to keep it up to date in advance. There will be no, um, due to some personal situation that I have to attend to tomorrow, that there was some personal business, I should say, there won't be an installment of Christiania Europe. It's been postponed until next week, January 18th. And at that time, Sven Longshanks and I, Yahweh willing, will be presenting the Druids and Christianity and the early Kaldi Church. We'll be discussing those, those portions of British history. Martin Luther. <clears throat> Martin Luther had written that the Jews in his own time, in the 16th century, had been already, had already been bragging about being the masters of Germany. He also wrote that they were impenitent and ceaseless blasphemers of Christ and of Christians and of Christianity. He described how they came to have such control of Germany through usury, and he recounted many of their other sins, among them the ritual murder of Christian children, the poisoning of wells, the chicanery of Jews pretending to be physicians and killing their Christian patients, either quickly or slowly. He understood that the Jews secretly hated Christians and sought to enslave and destroy them. Anyone who understands what is truly happening today in those white nations which were formerly known as Christendom, and that too is due to the Jews. Anyone who understands these things can see that none of this has changed in nearly 500 years. Rather, for the most part, it has become legally systematized behavior, or systematized behavior, excuse me. In these last two chapters of his essay on the Jews and their lives, Martin Luther warns the nobles and churchmen of Europe that Germany could not survive and had indeed invited upon itself the wrath of God because it tolerated the Jews. 
and it wouldn't survive if it continued to tolerate the Jews. And indeed, Germany didn't survive, not the real Germany. Luther said this with the proper biblical understanding that by approving of or even tolerating such sinners, one becomes a party to the sin of those sinners. And of course, the Jews being devils, they are sin personified, even if Luther didn't understand that. Now, in modern times, a thoroughly Judaized Christianity has eradicated this basic and necessary Christian precept of both the Old and New Testaments from its teaching. Judeo-Christianity insists that you hate the sin, as they like to say it, and love the sinner. The Bible would hate the sin and throw the sinner into the pits of hell until he repented. Paul of Tarsus instructed people on several occasions concerning sinners to turn them over to Satan for destruction of the flesh, meaning basically to turn Christian sinners over to the Jews who would destroy the flesh so that the spirit may survive in the day of Christ. We don't see that teaching any longer in Christianity, and Christians embrace not only Jews, but the most despicable sodomites and perverts imaginable. Luther, Luther fell short of saying that the Jews should be forcibly removed from the country but advocated that they should be driven out by making living conditions for them in Germany impossible. Luther, therefore, advocated that there, and he, he went into detail on this recommendation of what to do with the Jews in chapter 10 of his essay. Luther advocated that their synagogues and schools should be burned out of existence, that the houses of Jews should be razed, completely destroyed, that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings should be taken from them, that Jewish rabbis be forbidden to teach under penalty of death that all safe conduct for Jews on the roads of Germany be abolished, that all currency and precious metals be taken from them, and that they be barred from the practice of usury. And finally, that the Jews should be forced to work at honest and hard labor. Imagine that happening. With his warnings, Luther called the nobles of Germany to account for taking money from the Jews, understanding that those gifts were little but bribes, so that the Jews could continue farming much greater sums from the sweat of the German people. However, with all of this, Luther suggested that Jews who converted to Christianity may avoid disaster and even be rewarded 
with funds taken from Jews who would not convert. Luther's believed that there could be good Jews and that Jews could be Christians had already caused more harm than good, much more harm than good. Throughout these presentations of Luther's essays, we have endeavored to diligently make manifest the errors in Luther's theology concerning things which he admittedly had learned from Jews, Jews who he accepted as having converted to Christianity. The most notable of these were Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos, although there were several others. Jews who infiltrated Christianity in the 14th and 15th centuries, and who then wrote popular and voluminous Bible commentaries based right on the Talmud. In reality, these commentaries openly served to uphold and perpetuate the lies of the Jews concerning their own identity. To deflect men from the proper historical and Eurocentric interpretation of prophecy and to prop improperly contain interpretations of the most important prophecies to Palestine and to the Jews. Prophecies that had nothing to do with the Jews or Palestine, but which were clearly fulfilled in the ancient dispersions of the real children of Israel, in Mesopotamia, the Near East, and ultimately in Europe. As we said in the opening to part 19 of this series, from the Middle Ages all the way up to today's John Hagee's and Joel Osteen's, Jews have been destroying Christianity by pretending to be Christians, where they rapidly rise to the top of church organizations because Christians wrongly believe that Jews have some magical religious authority simply because they are Jews. This problem is evident in history and even in Luther's own writing. Martin Luther took the lies of the Jews for granted, even against the admonitions of Christ. In the foregoing chapter of this essay, in his warnings to the nobles of Germany, Luther had made the assertions that the Jews have no excuses for their denials of God and of Christ for the 1,500 years from the resurrection unto his own time. He also explained that the Jews committing so many crimes against Christians did so quite brazenly and without compunction. They didn't even get a guilty conscience over the things they did to Christians. Luther echoed the words of Christ who told his apostles that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. Luther then said that I firmly believe that they say and practice far worse things secretly than the histories and others record about them. Meanwhile, relying 
on their denials and on their money. And that's a pattern that Luther noticed and that they have set throughout history. And here, Luther echoed the words of Paul of Tarsus, who, while discussing the Christ deniers, had told the Ephesians, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. As we explained last week, these Jews being the Canaanites and Edomites of the Old Testament, the world's original Sodomites, we can't imagine these Jew bastards to have left off from their sodomy from the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah all the way to the time of the dawn of the 20th century when through the hand of the Jews sodomy once again became prevalent and visible in society. There's no doubt that the Jews had been committing sodomy and all of their other disgusting practices all along. They just didn't have the the balls to do it in an openly Christian society. Christianity contained Jewish immorality for many centuries. When Europeans ceased being Christians, the devils came right out of the closet. And now they promote sodomy everywhere. In this last chapter, chapter chapter 12 of his paper, Luther then argued that Christians worshipped one God and not three. And that that God must be true, since science cannot comprehend the wonders of his creation. However, since Luther continued to imagine that the Jews were Israel, he had also continued to make half-baked interpretations of prophecy, which could by no means ever apply or be found to have been fulfilled in the Jews. So Luther took small portions of Isaiah chapter 65, as he had done formerly with 2 Samuel chapter 7, and with many other scriptures. He also took it for granted that the Arabs were Ishmaelites, which demonstrates a complete disregard for the details of history while accepting false Jewish claims, not only about Jews, but false Jewish claims about the Arabs as well. It's the Jew who puts lipstick on that pig. In chapter 12, Luther had once again taken a very sarcastic approach to arguing against the Jews and their own professed messianic beliefs as compared to those of Christians. And he continues with that sarcasm in his last chapter. With this, we shall proceed with chapter 13 of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies and our analysis of his comments.
and he begins by writing. Furthermore, not only <clears throat> being sarcastic, not only do, do we foolish, craven Christians, and accursed goyim regard our Messiah as so indispensable for delivering us from death through himself and without our holiness. But we wretched people are also afflicted with such great and terrible blindness as to believe that he needs no sword or worldly power to accomplish this. For we cannot comprehend how God's wrath, sin, death, and hell can be banished with the sword. Since we observe that from the beginning of the world to the present day, death has not cared a fig for the sword. Since we observe, I'm sorry, it has overcome all emperors, kings, and whoever wields a sword as easily as it overcomes the weakest infant in the cradle. Speaking of death, Luther has been comparing the Christian Messiah who would deliver Christians from the power of death to the small M Messiah of Jewish aspirations, who would take the world by the sword and then allow Jews to rule the world and possess all of its wealth, while they themselves, as well as their Messiah, continue to live temporal lives because the Jew does not believe in eternal life. And Luther says, in this respect, the great seducers, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the other prophets do us great harm. And Luther is speaking sarcastically of things that the Jews say about those prophets. They beguile us mad goyim with their false doctrine, saying that the kingdom of the Messiah will not bear the sword. Oh, that the holy rabbis and the chivalrous bold heroes of the Jews would come to our rescue here and extricate us from these abominable errors. For when Isaiah 2.2 prophecies concerning the Messiah, that the Gentiles shall come to the house and mountain of the Lord, and let themselves be taught, for undoubtedly they do not expect to be murdered with the sword. In this case, they would surely not approach, but would stay away. He says, he, meaning the Messiah, shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Of course, Isaiah is speaking of the nations of Israel, as Israel was promised to become many nations. And this is one of Luther's biggest faults. He doesn't believe that part of the scripture, because he never teaches it. And when he does teach it, he teaches it backwards, as we shall see. Luther does, however, do well to point out that the Jews do deny all the prophets of Israel. Christ had said to them, as it is recorded in John chapter 5, For had you believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, 
How shall you believe my words? And of course, the Jews believed neither Christ nor Moses nor the rest of the prophets. However, Luther himself did not make the connection between the nations of the prophets and the nations which Moses prophesied of 800 years earlier. Those nations which would be the posterity, the descendants of the children of Israel, the seed of Abraham, promised to Abraham. And Jacob repeated those promises to his sons. Luther didn't see those nations in Scripture. He only associated the Old Testament Israelites with the Jews. That's his biggest fault. The nations of Israel are the nations of the prophets and the promises of the prophets, and they are not Jews, and they are not Gentiles, no matter how badly the King James Version and Martin Luther translate the word. Luther goes on to say, Similar sorcery is also practiced upon us poor Goyim in Isaiah 11.9. And Luther is making the assertion indirectly that the Jews imagine the words of the prophets to be sorcery because they don't believe the words of the prophets. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains Luther quoting Isaiah 11.9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. We poor blind Goyim cannot conceive of this knowledge of the Lord as a sword, but as instruction by which one learns to know God. Our understanding agrees with Isaiah 2, cited above, which also speaks of the knowledge which the Gentiles shall pursue. For knowledge does not come by the sword, but by teaching and hearing, as we stupid Goyim assume. Likewise, Isaiah 53.11, By this knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that is, by teaching them, and by their hearing him and believing in him. What else might his knowledge mean? In brief, the knowledge of the Messiah must come by preaching. And that's true. But Isaiah chapter 53 says that that knowledge is for the children of Israel. Malachi, Yahweh says, my people, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, not other people. Hosea says that Ephraim will learn doctrine line upon line. He doesn't say, Anybody else will learn doctrine. Ephraim will learn doctrine. Yahweh only operates in this positive manner upon his people Israel. Luther only believed half of those scriptures about knowledge. Luther misses the point of Isaiah 11.9, so we'll read it from verse 8. And the suckling child shall play on the whole of the asp, 
And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy, meaning the asp and the cockatrice. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that chapter, Isaiah is teaching that once the nations of dispersed Israel turn to Christ, the serpents and vipers, who are Jews, will no longer harm them, just as Christ told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, that he saw Satan fall from heaven and gave them power over serpents and scorpions. Luke chapter 10 and Isaiah 11, 8, and 9 should be cross-referenced without doubt. The serpents and vipers, who are Jews, will no longer harm the children of Israel or be able to once they turn to Christ. However, accepting those who rejected Christ, the nations fell victim to the Jews even in spite of Luther's warnings. Luther goes on to say, <clears throat> the proof of this is before your eyes, namely, that the apostles used no spear or sword, but solely their tongues. And their example has been followed in all the world now for 1,500 years by all the bishops, pastors, and preachers, and is still being followed. Just see, <clears throat> I'm sorry, just see whether the pastor wields sword or spear when he enters the church, preaches, baptizes, administers the sacrament. Luther was still very much a Catholic. When he retains and remits sin, restrains evildoers, comforts the godly, and teaches, helps, and nurtures everybody's soul. Does he not do all of this exclusively with the tongue or with words? And the congregation likewise brings no sword or spear to such a ministry, but only its ears. Luther's argument is predicated on the universalist notion that the Christian Messiah would bring all of the world's diverse peoples into subjection through the ideas transmitted in the gospel. That is not true. Rather, all of Israel would be brought into subjection to Christ on account of their punishment and through their punishment. I will bring you by a way which you did not know. And the gospel would stand as a witness to what was happening. The Christian Messiah would in turn, and this is the, the, the part Luther misses, would in turn ultimately vanquish his enemies as depicted in the bloodbath of Revelation chapter 19, where the blood is described as being up to the horse's bridles. Of course, Luther seems oblivious to this and to related prophecies, as he must be thinking that he is merely a Gentile. The message of the gospel is to bring Israel into obedience to God. There's no other gospel message. As Paul of Tarsus tells us, the children of Israel 
will be the instrument ready to avenge all disobedience once they fulfill their own obedience. Arise, Zion, and fresh. Back to Luther. And consider the miracles. The Roman Empire and the whole world abounded with idols to which the Gentiles adhered. The devil was mighty and defended himself vigorously. Now, Paul called these pagan nations Israel according to the flesh, and the Old Testament history confirms that they were. Luther misses that. All swords were against it, and yet the tongue alone purged the entire world of all these idols without a sword. And I would say that's only partly true, that the Goths and the Vandals certainly also had a hand in that, a hand which did have a sword in it. It also exercised innumerable devils, raised the dead, healed all types of diseases, and snowed and rained down sheer miracles. Thereafter, it swept away all heresy and error, as it still does daily before our eyes. And further, this is the greatest miracle. It forgives and blots out all sin, creates happy, peaceful, patient hearts, devours death, locks the doors of hell, and opens the gate of heaven and gives eternal life. Who can enumerate all the blessings affected by God's word? And none of these things were ever promised to anyone other than the children of Israel. But notice how Luther uses the term all the world, and we will discuss that a little later on. In brief, it makes all who hear it and believe it children of God and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And this is not true. Rather, it reconciles all Israelites to God and restores them into the position of sons, which they at one time had in the ancient kingdom. That is why Paul called it the gospel of reconciliation. The apostle John, in his gospel, quoting the high priest, and a prophecy which Yahweh gave through the mouth of the high priest, referred to the children of God spread abroad long before the gospel was spread abroad. They were already children of God spread abroad. They weren't made children of God by the gospel. They were made children of God because they were the dispersions of ancient Israel. Do you not call this a kingdom, power, might, dominion, glory? Yes, most certainly. This is a comforting kingdom and the true kendah of all the Gentiles. As we explained at length when Luther had first presented this argument, he imagined Christ to be the desire or kendah of Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. It's desire in the King James Version. In fact, we established that the desire 
of the nations of Haggai 2.7 is the silver and gold of Haggai 2.8. Luther continues, And should I, in company with the Jews, desire or accept bloodthirsty Kokhba, a reference to Simon Bar Kokhba, who Luther correctly used as a model for the Messiah which the Jews had hoped to see, a temporal Messiah who would vanquish the Goyim and allow the Jews to rule the world. Desire or accept a bloodthirsty kakba in place of such a kingdom. As I said, in such circumstances, I would rather be a sow than a man. All the writings of the prophets agree fully with this interpretation that the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, flock to Shiloh after the scepter had been wrested from Judah, as Jacob says in Genesis 49. Likewise, that the 70 weeks of Daniel are fulfilled, that the temple of Haggai is destroyed, but the house and throne of David have remained until the present time and will endure forever. On the other hand, according to the mischievous denial, lying, and cursing of the Jews, whom God has rejected, this is not the meaning of these passages, much less has it been fulfilled. As we have already explained at length, Luther's interpretation of Genesis 49.10 twists the meaning of that passage so that he can force it to fit into the history of Judea. And, and he did very poorly with that. However, he did very well in using the Messianic 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 in order to prove that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The Messiah of Israel had to appear before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, without a doubt. So, if the Jews did not accept Christ as Messiah, they will never have a Messiah. And of course they don't. All they have coming is a holocaust. To speak first of the saying of Jacob in Genesis 49, we heard before what idle and senseless foolishness the Jews have invented regarding it, yet without hitting upon any definite meaning and of course this is true, but Luther's interpretation is just as bad. But if we confess our Lord Jesus and let him be the Shiloh, or Messiah, all agrees, coincides, rhymes, and harmonizes beautifully and delightfully. And we would have to object. This is not true. And that's because Christ, at his first advent, by his own admonition, came not to bring peace, but a sword. So he cannot be that Shiloh or peace promised in Genesis 49.10. He cannot be that if he came not to bring peace. 
Christ also explicitly, as the Gospel of John makes very clear, and as Acts chapter 1 makes clear, Christ explicitly rejected the scepter. If Christ rejected the scepter and came not to bring peace but a sword, then Shiloh shall not come until his second advent. Genesis 49.10 Luther gets Genesis 49.10 backwards because he claims that it means that when the scepter departs from Judah, that Shiloh would come. And he only counts Judea as Judah. But that's not what it says. Genesis 49.10 says that the scepter and a lawgiver will remain with Judah until Shiloh comes. There's a grammatical trick that the King James employs very often. It flips the subject and the object of sentences. And the Luther does that there. He reverses the meaning of the passage by inverting the subject and the object of the sentence. And that's dishonest. It makes a lie. But if we confess, I'm sorry, I already read that. For he appeared promptly on the scene, speaking of Christ at his first advent. He appeared promptly on the scene at the time of Herod, after the scepter had departed from Judah. And actually, um, there hadn't been a king of Judah in about 600 years. Almost. He initiated his rule of peace without a sword, as Isaiah and Zechariah had prophesied, and all the nations gathered about him, both Jews and Gentiles, so that on one day in Jerusalem 3,000 souls became believers, and many members of the priesthood and of the princes of the people also flocked to him, as Luke records in Acts chapters 3 and 4. And this is, I don't know, Luther's disconnected from reality because we have had no peace since Christ. None whatsoever. We've had nothing but a sword. Even in Europe, Christians against Christians throughout our entire history, Shiloh has not come. Luther imagines the nations, Jews and Gentiles, to be gathered to Christ, but rather the message of the gospel is that dispersed Israelites be gathered to Christ from the nations of Israel, as well as remnant Israelites from among the Judeans. That's the promise of the prophets which can only concern the children of Israel. There's nothing about gathering Gentiles to Christ in Scripture. 
In fact, the only scriptures I could think of when non-Israelite Gentiles are gathered are in Ezekiel chapter 38 and Revelation chapter 20 when Satan gathers all of the ostensibly non-Israelite nations against the children of Israel in order to attempt to destroy the children of Israel. And Luther doesn't even go there. For more than 100 years after Jesus' resurrection, that is, from the 18th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius until the 18th year of the reign of Emperor Hadrian, who inflicted the second and last bloodbath of the Jews, who defeated Kokhba and drove the Jews utterly and completely from their country. There were always bishops in Jerusalem from the tribe of the children of Israel, all of whom our Eusebius mentions by name, referring to his Ecclesiastical History, Book 4. He begins with St. James, the apostle, and enumerates about 15 of them, all of whom preached the gospel with great diligence, performed miracles, and lived the holy life, converting many thousands of Jews and children of Israel to their promised Messiah, who had now appeared, Jesus of Nazareth. Apart from these, there were the Jews living in the diaspora, who were converted together with the Gentiles by St. Paul, other apostles, and their disciples. This was accomplished despite the fact that the other faction, the blind, impenitent Jews, the fathers of the present-day Jews, and he got that part right, raved, raged, and ranted against it without let-up and without ceasing, and shed much blood of members of their own race, both within their own country and abroad among the Gentiles, as, we, as was related earlier also of Kakba, Simon Bar Kakba. What Luther misses in history is very clear in Josephus and the New Testament that Judea was a mixed race province in the Roman Empire that consisted of Israelites and also of Edomites and other Canaanites, as well as Greeks, Romans, Syrians. And that according to the New Testament, the Israelites, for the most part, had accepted the gospel and lost, they lost their identity as Judeans, becoming, as Paul says, one in Christ, becoming Christians. While Edomites and other Canaanites rejected Christ, had him executed, denied his resurrection, and are now those who say they are Judeans and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. This very simple account is taught in Josephus, in Antiquities, book 13, in Ezekiel, chapter 34, Malachi, chapter 1, Luke, chapter 19, John, chapters 8 and 10, Romans, chapter 9, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. This simple story, once it's pointed out, is easy to follow. 
once one has the citations and reads them in their historical context. It's an easy story to follow. The Old Testament, and there's other passages in the Old Testament that supported Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, but the Old Testament makes it very clear in Ezekiel 34 that the Edomites had taken over the land. In Malachi chapter 1, that it would be Edomites to return who tried to return and rebuild the waste places. It's very clear in the New Testament that the reason why these people rejected Christ was because they were Edomites and Canaanites and were not true Israelites. Luther missed the whole story. And that was perhaps, in in fact, it was certainly providential so that other scriptures could be fulfilled. But we must improve on Luther just like we must improve on all of our Christian teachers. After Hadrian had expelled the Jews from their country, however, it was necessary to choose the bishops in Jerusalem from the Gentiles who had become Christians. But the Jews were no longer found or tolerated in the country because of Kokhba and his rebellious followers, who gave the Romans no rest. Yet the other pious converted Jews who lived dispersed among the Gentiles converted many of the children of Israel as we gather from the epistles of St. Paul and from the histories. But these always and everywhere suffered persecution at the hands of the Cacobites so that the pious children of Israel had no worse enemies than their own people. This is true today in the instance of converted Jews. Not understanding that the wheat and tares were separated at the time of Christ, Luther imagines that a devil who is descended from generations of devils could somehow be made into an angel. As we pointed out at length in in the last part of our presentation, Christ himself attested that there would be no more good fruit from among the Jews, and that a bad tree could not possibly produce good fruit. A thousand generations of devils cannot produce one good apple. All the converted Jews of the Middle Ages served to do was to corrupt Christianity with Talmudism and to uphold the false claims of the Jews concerning their identity and to keep those passages that we've just mentioned, those many passages in the New Testament which show us exactly who the Jews are to keep their meaning shrouded from the eyes of Christians. Luther continues, the Gentiles all over the world now also gathered about these pious converted children of Israel. We'll get to that one momentarily. This they did in great numbers and with such zeal that they gave up not only their idols and their own wisdom, 
but also forsook wife and child, friends, goods, and honor, life and limb for the sake of it. They suffered everything that the devil and all the other Gentiles, as well as the Jews, could contrive. For all of that, they did not seek a kakba, nor the Gentiles' gold, silver, possessions, dominion, land, or people. They sought eternal life, a life other than this temporal one. They were poor and wretched voluntarily, and yet were happy and content. They were not embittered or vindictive, but kind and merciful. They prayed for their enemies, and in addition, performed many and great miracles. That has lasted uninterruptedly from that time on down to the present day, and it will endure to the end of the world. The scripture does not say that the Gentiles would gather around some converted Jews. Rather, the scripture says that the dispersed nations of Israel would gather around Christ. Luther's attitude seems almost to forebode the current Protestant phenomenon, where so-called Judeo-Christian churches are worshiping the Jews rather than worshiping Jesus. He continues, It is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Jews as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. And of course, Christ was indeed a Judean, but Christ was not a Jew. His sheep heard his voice, and they followed him. And Luther's statement proves that. The Edomites rejected him because the Edomites, who retained the label of Judean and later contracted that to Jew, they were not his sheep, as Christ told them. You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Very plain and simple. They were never going to believe him because they were not his sheep. They could not believe him. He did not come for them. Notice, however, and this is revealing, that Luther here said the Gentiles in all the world accepted Christ. This is 1543. Luther used the past tense. The Gentiles in all the world, he says, accepted past tense Christ. At Luther's time, there were innumerable Indians, Asians, Orientals, yellow, squat monsters, whatever you want to call them, Arabs, Turks, and others who were rejecting Christ, 
who there were no Christian missionaries among. Not yet. While Roman Catholicism at Luther's time, which Luther rejects as Christianity, he does not say that Roman Catholicism is Christianity. Roman Catholicism was being forced on the squat monsters of the Americas and the Caribbean by the sword. And Luther, as he says here, also rejects the notion that Christianity should be spread by the sword. But that's what the Spaniards were doing and the Portuguese were doing in South America and in the Caribbean. Luther's language here shows that to Luther, Christian Europe was all the world. All the world to Luther was Christian Europe. He goes on to say, they did and suffered so much for his sake and forsook all idolatry, just so that they might live with him eternally. This has been going on now for 1,500 years. No worship of a false god ever endured so long, nor did all the world suffer so much because of it or cling so firmly to it. And I suppose one of the strongest proofs is found in the fact that no other god ever withstood such hard opposition as the Messiah, against whom alone all other gods and peoples have raged and against whom they all acted in concert, no matter how varied they were or how they otherwise disagreed. And this is an extremely telling paragraph because it's giving us insight through which the scope of Luther's perceived universalism has to be reinspected. Luther again seems to mean Christian Europe alone as all the world, and he compares it to other gods and peoples. So the yellow squat monsters worshiping Buddha are not part of all the world. The brown Indians worshiping those, those creatures with six heads and 20 arms are not, in Luther's purview, part of all the world. The Negroes practicing witchcraft and animism and, and um, whatever other disgusting things they do, they are other gods and peoples that aren't to Luther, part of all the world. Other gods and peoples are not a part of the world which was to receive the gospel according to Luther. That's what he's saying here. He's not explaining it for that purpose to teach that, 
But it's what he's saying. According to Luther, as he speaks here, all the world already had the gospel. All the world in 1543 was basically limited to the old Greco-Roman oikumene with a few add-ons in Northern Europe. Whoever, to return to Luther, whoever is not moved by this miraculous spectacle quite deserves to remain blind or to become an accursed Jew. We Christians perceive that these events are in agreement with the statement of Jacob found in Genesis 49. To Shiloh, or Messiah, after the scepter has dropped from the hands of Judah, shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Luther's clinging to this false interpretation because his arguments are so thoroughly invested in it. We have the fulfillment of this before our eyes. The people, that is, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, are in perfect accord in their obedience to this Shiloh. They have become one people, that is, Christians. One cannot mention or think of anyone to whom this verse of Jacob applies and refers so fittingly as to our dear Lord Jesus. It would have had to be someone who appeared just after the loss of the scepter, or else the Holy Spirit lied through the mouth of the Holy Patriarch Jacob, and God forgot his promise. May the devil say that, or anyone who wishes to be an accursed Jew. And actually, it was true Israel and true Judah who were dispersed among the nations of Europe, according to Scripture and who became one people in Christ, as the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37 says, that they would become one stick in the hands of Yahweh their God. And Luther's certainly right to consider them all the world, even if he didn't know why. Luther is oblivious to the meaning of Ezekiel 37. He would have certainly mentioned it here because he's basically describing it, but he can't identify the parties. He's oblivious to this and to all prophecies concerning the identity of true Israel, ostensibly, because he accepted all the lies of the converso Jews concerning Israel. He goes on to say, Likewise, the verse regarding the everlasting house and throne of David fits no other than this our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. For subsequent to the rule of the kings from the tribe of Judah and since the days of Herod, we cannot think of any son of David who might have sat on his throne or still occupies it today to preserve his throne eternally as it says in 2 Samuel 
Yet that is what had to take place and still must take place since God promised it with an oath. But when this son of David arose from the dead, many, many thousands of of the children of Israel rallied around him, both in Jerusalem and throughout the world, accepting him as their king and Messiah, as the true seed of Abraham and of their lineage. These were and still are the house, the kingdom, the throne of David, for they are the descendants of the children of Israel and the seed of Abraham, over whom David was king. In spite of 2 Samuel 7.10, where Yahweh promises David that Israel would be moved out of Palestine, Luther insists that this promise to David about David's throne was contained to Palestine. And then he twists the meanings of the promise concerning the scepter and lawgiver to fit the Edomite rulers of the time of Herod. They were actually... um, They were actually in Judea about 38, 30, 70 years of Herod, one Herod or another, up to the time of the crucifixion. 38 years, I believe, Herod became king about 38 BC. And the crucifixion was probably in 32 BC. 70 years of Herod. Herod Archelaus, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. There were 70 years of Herod up to the crucifixion. And there were actually a bunch of Herods. So, Luther is really forcing the interpretation of Genesis 49.10 to keep it in Palestine. that they have now died and lie buried does not matter. They are nonetheless his kingdom and his people before him. They are dead to us and to the world, but to him they are alive and not dead. It is natural that the blind Jews are unaware of this, for he who is blind sees nothing at all. We Christians, however, know that he says in John 8.56 and in Matthew 22.32, Abraham lives. Also in John 11.25, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Thus, David's house and throne are firmly established. There is a son occupying it eternally who never dies, nor does he ever let die those who are of his kingdom or who accept him in the true faith as king. That marks the true fulfillment of this verse, which declares that David's throne shall be eternal. Now let all the devils and Jews, Turks, and whoever wants to concern himself with it, also name one or more sons of David, to whom this verse regarding the house of David applies so precisely and beautifully since the time of Herod, and we shall be ready to praise them. And Luther's interpretation is forced, 
because he cannot imagine a tribe of Judah or a house of David apart from the Jews in Palestine. I don't know what Luther imagined happened to so many hundreds of thousands of people of Israel and Judah who were deported by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and who never returned to Palestine. But it's the majesty and wonder of God that we in Christian identity can look back and see that David's throne is indeed perpetuated outside of Palestine according to the promise to David and also according to the promises that the children of Israel would become many nations and be removed from Palestine which was promised to David as well in 2 Samuel 7. When we when we discussed at length Luther's interpretation of 2 Samuel chapter 7, which he went into at length, we saw that he quoted verses all around verse 10, but he never quoted verse 10. And that is certainly the glory of God that his word is true, that the children of Israel would remain blind until he lifts that veil. To such a kingdom and throne of David, we Gentiles belong, along with all who have accepted this Messiah and son of David as king with the same faith and who continue to accept him to the end of the world and in eternity. Jacob's saying in Genesis chapter 10 states, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's actually just the last clause in Genesis 49.10. This means not only one nation, such as the children of Israel, but also whatever others are called nations. And here Luther, wow, this is where all of Luther's error originates. In those same promises in Genesis chapter 49, in Genesis 48 and 49, the children of Israel were promised to become many nations, nations and companies of nations and great nations. And Jacob had some sort of promise for every one of his sons, even if Ephraim and Manasseh got the lion's share of the promises. Every tribe of Israel was at least one nation and not in Palestine. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is already referring to the tribes of Israel as nations. Using that word goy, the Hebrew word for nation, in the plural.
Luther himself demonstrates that he only believes half the promises of Scripture. And therefore, even though he believes the better half, because he believes the ones referring to Christ, he's still just about as bad as the Jews, because he denies the other half of the promises and takes for granted that they all add up to Jews. And later, we read in Genesis 22.18, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves. The King James has simply, be blessed. In this verse, we find the term goyim, which in the Bible commonly means the Gentiles, except where the prophets also call the Jews this in a strong tone of contempt. That's not true, because Abraham was promised that his seed would be many goyim. And Rebekah was told that there were two goyim in her womb. And Jacob told his sons that they would be a goyim and a company of goyim. So that's not true. Luther's telling half-truths. To summarize, the blessing of God through the seed of Abraham shall not be confined to his physical descendants, but shall be disseminated among all the Gentiles. That is why God himself calls Abraham father of a multitude of nations, Genesis 17.5. There are many more such sayings in Scripture. Well, there are. There certainly are. But you know something? In Romans chapter 4, Paul said, speaking of that same promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.5, that God called things not existing as existing. And that means that when God made the promise to Abraham, that those nations that Abraham's seed became did not exist. Martin Luther is lying. He's lying because he doesn't understand the promise and its fulfillment. He's lying because deep down in his heart, he knows that he should be a Christian. He's lying because he feels that he's not an Israelite, that the Jews are Israelites, but he has to force himself into the picture. So he's lying about the promise to Abraham because according to Paul of Tarsus, when God made those that promise to Abraham, those nations did not exist. Yet, if those nations were non-Israelite Gentiles, they must have existed when the promise was made to Abraham. Otherwise, where did they come from? They had to come from Abraham's seed in order to fulfill the promise. Martin Luther is again kind of flipping the subject and the object of a sentence. The promise to Abraham does not say that many nations would become his seed. The promise to Abraham says that his seed, the subject, would become many nations, the object. You can't just, in Greek especially, because Greek has something called grammatical cases, and the subject typically appears in the nominative case, and the object of the verb typically appears in the accusative case. And 
But King James actually does this. It's incredible. They take the nominative case and translate it as the object, and they take the accusative case and translate it as the subject when it fits established church dogma. They pervert the translation purposely, but they didn't do it in this case. Even in the King James, it clearly says over and over again that Abraham's seed would become many nations. It never says that many nations would become Abraham's seed, but that's how Martin Luther is interpreting it here. It's a lie. No lie is God. Not understanding that the children of Israel had grown into the nations of Europe and Mesopotamia, supplanting, they didn't eliminate them all, but they supplanted the Genesis 10 nations, which were the nations at the time of Abraham. Luther and all the other churchmen hopelessly misunderstand the promise to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, however, Paul explained this promise where he says that they from faith, they are the sons of Abraham. And the writing, having foreseen that from faith Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that the faith which he's talking about, the faith of Abraham was that Abraham believed that his offspring would become many nations according to the promise, so shall thy seed be. Not many nations would become your seed, but your seed would become many nations. So shall thy seed be. Martin Luther cannot possibly be interpreting these promises in Genesis 22 and in Genesis 17 according to the New Testament and Paul of Tarsus. Martin Luther can only be interpreting these promises according to those damned Jews, Lyra and Bergenses. He doesn't tell us that, but it can come from no other place. Those medieval crypto-Jew bastards that converted to Christianity and wrote voluminous commentaries right from the pages of the Talmud and passed them off as Christian Bible commentaries and, and countless generations of Christian so-called ministers and priests taught from these commentaries just like Martin Luther is doing, accepting the lies of the Jews in place of the word of God. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham's faith was his belief that his offspring would become many nations. Therefore, in Galatians, Paul of Tarsus is informing us 
that the promise of Genesis 22.18 applies to the nations which God foresaw. The nations which the offspring of Abraham would become. But Martin Luther twists, just like he twists Genesis 49.10 to mean the exact opposite of what it truly says so that he could keep the scepter in Judea, Luther also twists Genesis 17.5. The promise does not say that many nations would become Abraham's seed. In fact, Abraham tried to take a man of his own nation. Eleazar, and make him his heir. And that wasn't good enough for Yahweh. Yahweh said, no way, pal. Your heir, your heir is going to come from your loins. The promise clearly says, in so many places, that Abraham's seed would become many nations. This grammatical bait and switch, or switcheroo, of the subject and object of sentences is a universalist trick, and it's very dishonest. It is tantamount to a denial of the promises of God. You can't just switch the subject and object of sentences to make it say what you're comfortable with. You have to read the sentence in its original language and correctly determine the subject and the object before you translate. And trust that it says what it says. Martin Luther goes on to say, the reason that Scripture calls this kingdom David's throne and that it calls the king Messiah, David's seed, is found in the fact that this kingdom of David and the king Messiah did not come from us Gentiles to the children of Abraham and Israel, but came from the children of Abraham and Israel, as the Lord himself says in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. Reading that, no wonder why Judeo-Christians worship the Jews. What Christ really said was that salvation is from among the Judeans. And that really means that the salvation of Israel came from out of the remnant kingdom of Judah. Luther continues, Even if we are all descended from Adam and partake of the same birth and blood, Nevertheless, all other nations were shunted aside, and solely Abraham's seed was selected as the nation from which the Messiah would come. After Abraham, only Isaac. After Isaac, only Jacob. After Jacob, only Judah. After Judah, only David were chosen, and the other brothers, each in his turn, were pushed aside and not chosen as the lineage from which the Messiah was to come. But everything, all things, happened for the sake of the Messiah. Therefore, the whole seed of Abraham, especially those who believed in this Messiah, were highly honored by God. As St. Paul says in Acts 13:17. God made the people great, 
For it surely is a great honor and distinction to be able to boast of being the Messiah's relative and kin. The closer the relationship, the greater the honor. I don't really know where it says that in Scripture. Because Christ, when he was pressed to see his mother and his brethren, his closest brethren, his half-brothers by the same mother, outside the door where he was preaching, Christ said that he who hears my words and obeys, they are my mother and my brethren. So Luther is basically... Wow, kissing Jew ass here. I can't explain this any other way. He is currying the favor of the Jews by that statement, trying to bestow on them honors that they don't deserve, thinking that Christ was a Jew. Luther is basically the precursor to today's Judeo churches that worship Jews rather than Jesus. What which seems pretty incredible, but he's confused within himself. On one hand, he knows the Jews are evil, he knows they're devils, he knows that, that they're impenitent, and on the other hand, he's covering their favor by basically, contrary to Scripture, ingratiating them. That's the only way I could describe that. He misunderstands Paul, because when Paul talks about the God of Israel, he's not talking about the Jews, and that's what he's quoting from Acts thirteen seventeen. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, Paul said that the promises were for the 12 tribes of Israel and that the Jews were acting contrarily to those promises and persecuting the apostles. By doing that, in Acts chapter 26, Paul himself is distinguishing the Jews from the 12 tribes and telling us that the Jews are not the 12 tribes and that the 12 tribes are not the Jews. Furthermore, if the Messiah of the promises was a literal descendant of Abraham's seed, as the scripture says, then the nations of the promises must also be literal descendants from Abraham's seed. And Luther denies that. Luther cannot have it one way for the Messiah and another way for the nations. It's the same word, seed. It can't mean one thing in reference to the Messiah and something else in reference to the heirs of the promises. That is absolutely dishonest. Luther's interpretations are forced because he does not understand the identity of Israel, and they are dishonest because they turn the word of God into lies. And he goes on to say, however, this boasting 
that he just described it, that he just attributed the Jews with being able to boast of being the Messiah's relative and king. And then he says, this boasting must not stem from the idea that Abraham's and his descendants' lineage is worthy of such honor, for that would nullify everything. It must be based rather on the fact that God chose Abraham's flesh and blood for this purpose out of sheer grace and mercy, although it surely deserved a far different lot. And of course, this is true of Israel's. But it's not true to Jews, because Christ is not a Jew. We Gentiles, too, having, have been honored very highly by being made partakers of the Messiah and the kingdom and by enjoying the blessing promised to Abraham's seed, which is not found anywhere in Scripture. Rather, the nations would be Abraham's seed, who partook of the promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that the Gentiles are Israel. Behold, Israel according to the flesh, the things that Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Paul is telling us right there that the Gentiles are Israel according to the flesh. And instead, Luther believed in the lying Jews. He goes on to say, But if we should boast as though we were deserving of this, and not acknowledge that we owe it to sheer pure mercy, giving God alone the glory, all would also be spoiled and lost. As it is said in 1 Corinthians 4-7, What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? I guess Luther read 1 Corinthians 4, but he didn't read 1 Corinthians 10, so that he could see that Israel, according to the flesh, were the nations of pagan Europe. He would not, he would not have understood that. The gift of mercy was a gift promised to Israel exclusively. Nowhere in the prophets is there any promise of mercy or grace for non Israelite Gentiles. Thus, Luther continues, thus the dear son of David, Jesus Christ, is also our King and Messiah. Luther's right, but he doesn't know how. And we glory in being his kingdom and people, just as much as David himself and all children of Israel and Abraham. For we know that he has been instated as Lord, King, and Judge over the living and the dead. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. That is, we will also live after death, as we just heard, and as St. Paul preaches in Romans 14.8. We look for no bloodthirsty kakba in him, but the true Messiah who can give life and salvation. That is what is meant by a son of David sitting on his throne eternally. The blind Jews and Turks know nothing of all of this. May God have mercy on them as he has had and will have on us. Amen. And of course the scripture promises both Jews 
enters the lake of fire, and certainly not any mercy. No one gets to the Father except through Christ. Luther goes on to say, Neither can one produce a Messiah to whom the statement in Daniel applies other than this Jesus of Nazareth. Even if this drives the devil with all his angels and Jews to madness. For we heard before how lame the lies of the Jews regarding King Cyrus and King Agrippa are. However, things did come to pass in accord with the words of the angel Gabriel, and we see the fulfillment before our eyes. Seventy weeks of years, he says, are decreed concerning your people and your holy city. He does not mention the city by name, Jerusalem, but he simply says, your holy city. Nor does he say, God's people, but simply, your people. For this people's and this city's holiness are to terminate after the expiration of the 70 weeks. In its place, a new people, a new Jerusalem, and a different holiness would arise in which one would no longer have to propitiate sin annually by sacrifice, worship, and holiness in the temple, and yet never become righteous and perfectly holy, because the atonement had to be repeated and sought anew by sacrifice every year. And the degree of error in Luther's assertions here would take hours to fully address. There is nowhere in Daniel 9 where it says that the people's holiness would be terminated, as Luther asserts here. There is nowhere in Daniel 9 where it says that. Rather, there are three groups of people described in Daniel in this messianic prophecy. First, there are the most holy who would be anointed, to anoint the most holy. And John, the apostle, John 2, I'm sorry, 1 John, his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 27, speaks about that when he says, the anointing which you have received. With that group of people, the most holy, would the covenant be confirmed? That's what Daniel is saying. With this first group of people, the covenant would be confirmed. The promises to the fathers, which we see described in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 75. Those people, their holiness isn't being taken away those people who accept Christ. So this is the first group of people described in Daniel. Then there's the second group of people described in Daniel 9. The desolate, upon whom the wrath of God would be poured. Those people, there's no hope for. They are the desolate and they are going to bear the brunt of God's wrath. As Christ said in Luke chapter 21, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies 
know that her desolation is nigh. For these are the days of vengeance. Yahweh doesn't take vengeance against his people. He chastises and corrects his people. He takes vengeance upon his enemies. That's the second group of people described in Daniel chapter 9. And then there's a third group of people. They are the people of the prince. Messiah the prince. The people of the prince would come and destroy the city. Those people, that third group, they are the Romans and the other so-called Gentiles who are really dispersed Israelites. That's how they are the people of Christ. They are the people of the prince. Israel, according to the flesh, even though they were pagan, who came to destroy the city and execute the wrath that was to be poured upon the desolate. So Daniel chapter 9 talks about the city and three groups of people. And Luther lumps them all together and says something about them that's not true. Simplifying oversimplifying his interpretation because he imagines that it's only talking about Jews and all Jews are, are, are evil because they rejected Christ. So it fits his paradigm. But his paradigm is not correct. He says, rather, the Messiah would bring eternal righteousness, make misdeeds of no effect, check transgressions, atone for sin, fulfill prophecies and visions, etc., where sin has been forever removed and eternal righteousness is sound, there, sacrifice for sin or for righteousness is no longer required. And, of course, all of these things are only applicable to the children of Israel. And we will discuss that shortly. Why should one seek righteousness by service to God if this righteousness is already at hand? And of course, sin still exists. Luther says, why should one sacrifice for sin if it no longer exists? Sin still exists. Revelation 18.4 proves that sin still exists. James 5.20 proves that sin still exists. 1 John chapter 2 proves that sin still exists after the resurrection. 1 John chapter 2. My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong, in order that you do not sin. And if one should sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate, but sin still exists. Luther goes on to say, Why should one seek righteousness by service to God if this righteousness is already at hand? 
But if sacrifice and worship are no longer necessary, of what use are the priests and the temple? If priests and temple are no longer necessary, why a people in a city who are served by them? It must develop into a new people, and that's not the story of Scripture. That's contrary to the words of the prophets, time and time and time again. And city which no longer needs such priests, temple, sacrifice, and worship, or it must be laid low and destroyed together with the useless temple and worship, priests, and sacrifice. For the 70 weeks, pronounce the final judgment and put an end to them, together with the city and temple, priests, sacrifice, and worship. That's not entirely true, because many of those priests became Christians. But the priesthood was done away with. Luther's dishonesty is predicated first by the belief that Daniel was only talking about Jews. The Christian church, composed of Jews and Gentiles, is such a new people and a new Jerusalem. This people knows that sin has been removed entirely by Jesus Christ, that all prophecy has been fulfilled and eternal righteousness established. All prophecy fulfilled. That's Luther was evidently a preterist. Wherever Luther got the idea that all prophecy had been fulfilled, probably in those same medieval Jews, he is very, very wrong. The arguments against preterism are many. The best argument against preterism is the revelation taken in concert with the book of Daniel. The Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, read along with Daniel chapter 7, proves beyond doubt that all prophecy is not fulfilled at the time of Christ because they are prophecies which are clearly not yet fulfilled. The same thing with, the same thing with Revelation chapter 20 in concert with Ezekiel 38 and 39 proves that all prophecy is not fulfilled. There are many other passages of Scripture where it's very clear. Malachi chapter 1 is another one. Things that could not have been fulfilled by the time of Christ. For he who believes in him is eternally righteous, and all his sins are forever made of no effect. They are atoned for and forgiven, as the New Testament, especially St. Peter and Paul, strongly emphasizes. We no longer hear it said, whoever offers guilt offerings or sin offerings or other offerings in Jerusalem becomes righteous or has atoned for his sin. But now we hear, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. No matter where in the wide world he may be, he need not travel to Jerusalem. No, Jerusalem has come to him. And it's clearly evident that, wherever, that Luther probably did not have the ancient manuscripts required to determine that the last 11 verses of the Gospel of Mark are indeed an interpolation. They should not be in Scripture.
David, too, proclaimed in this Psalm, chapter 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and sin offering thou dost not desire, but thou hast given me an open ear, that is, the ears of the world, that they might hear and believe and must be saved without sacrifice, temple and priests, burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. Indeed, this is the Messiah who brought righteousness through his will and obedience. This is the message of the book of Moses and of all the prophets. And actually, I would say it's half the message of Moses and the prophets. Luther disbelieves the other half, which concerns the people of Israel. Thus also, Gabriel says that the sacrifice will not be adequate. He declares that the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. Daniel 9.26. Of what will he have nothing? Find out about what he is talking. He is speaking to Daniel about his people and his holy city. He will have none of these so that their holiness will no longer be with him and in him. The versions of the Septuagint, in this case, do not agree with one another here, and neither do all of the English translations of Daniel 9.26, where Luther says that the Messiah shall have nothing. However, Luther, if you want to read exactly what Luther imagines Daniel 9.26 to read, the New American Standard Bible translates it as Luther does. The King James does not. Luther is taking advantage of an obscure clause to make his point. The best Septuagint manuscripts in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 say, the anointed one, or the Messiah, shall be cut off and shall not be. That's it. He shall be cut off and shall not be. None of the Greek versions, the Greek versions, agree with Luther. And Luther ignores the two positive references to people later in the passage, the most holy who are anointed and the people of the prince who come to destroy the city. Thus, Psalm 16.4 says, I do not want their libations of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. And this interpretation of Psalm 16.4 in Luther's essay is dishonest. It's absolutely dishonest. Because in Psalm 16.4, the words are not the words of Yahweh speaking about Israel. They are the words of David speaking about his enemies. And in verse 3 of that psalm, David said, But to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight, where he was speaking about Israelites as well. Luther is twisting scripture dishonestly, and it's discrediting him because he takes 
what he feels is expedient. He strips the context away and uses it the way he feels fit. That's not the way to interpret Scripture. Never. He goes on to say, So also we read in Isaiah 33, The people who will dwell in the new Jerusalem will be called a people forgiven of all sin. They must be Israelites. They can't be anybody else. And Jeremiah 32 also promises another, a new covenant, in which not Moses with his covenant shall reign, but rather, as he says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And he's really quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 34. This is indeed a covenant of grace, of forgiveness, of remission of all sins eternally, that cannot, of course, be effected by the sword, as the bloodthirsty cockabites aspire to do. No, this was brought to the unworthy world by pure grace, through the crucified Messiah, for eternal righteousness and salvation, as Gabriel does here. And this is, like, amazing to me. Luther quotes Jeremiah 31 in relation to the New Covenant and completely ignores the very plain fact that the New Covenant is to be made explicitly with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's only three verses preceding the verse which Luther quoted that Luther ignores that is absolutely incredible and absolutely dishonest. No doubt. Furthermore, as the Apostle John attests, sin is the transgression of the law. And as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, Sin is in the world before the law. Of course it was. Sin reigned in death from Adam to Moses, right? But it is not accounted. Sin was not accounted. It's still sin. If there's no law against murder, murder is still sin if you commit murder. Sin was not accounted since there is no law. There are no people under a covenant with Yahweh that required them to keep his law. Not until Moses. So sin is not accounted since there is no law, no requirement on the part of Adamic man to keep the law. Not being accounted without law, there's no sacrifice for transgression necessary. Christ didn't sacrifice himself for the transgressions of anyone except the children of Israel. There's no sacrifice necessary since sin is not accounted there not being law. The sacrifice for sin in Christ is therefore only applicable to those who are under the law, 
as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4, that he came to redeem those who were under the law. The sacrifice and forgiveness of sin is therefore applicable only to Israel, and the new covenant is applicable only to Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, Christ came to make an end of sin. Did people stop murdering? Of course not. Then how did Christ make an end of sin? Easy, because sin is transgression of the law, and where there is no law, sin is not accounted. Christ came to put an end to the judgments of the law. He freed Israel from the law, as we see in Romans chapter 7. So sin would not be accounted to the children of Israel. That's how the Apostle John tells us not to sin. But if we do sin, we being the children of Israel, we have an intercessor in Christ. Christ is our mediator between God and man. Where it used to be, that the Old Testament sacrifices were our mediator. And all of this only applies to the children of Israel. It can't apply to anybody else because they are not included in any of these promises, in any of this history, in the need for redemption, in the need for a mediator, in the need for release from the law, all of this, New Testament and Old, only applies to the genetic children of Israel who were under the law. Abraham's seed. Luther don't get it. He can't get it because he doesn't understand the identity of the peoples in Scripture. The only people who could possibly understand Scripture correctly are identity Christians. Everybody else is just a fraud. They twist the, the words, they flip the subjects and the objects of the promises like they're flipping a damn coin, heads or tails. That's not how you translate sentences. Back to Luther, for the sake of finishing Luther tonight. As was said before, this saying is too rich. The whole New Testament is summed up in it. Consequently, more time and space would be needed to expound it fully. At present, it will suffice if we are convinced that it is impossible to understand this statement as referring to any other Messiah or King than our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. This is true also for the reason that at that time, in the last week, no other Messiah than this was killed. For as Daniel's words clearly indicate, there must be a Messiah who was killed at that time. And Luther's absolutely correct. The Messiah of Israel had to be killed before the Romans came to destroy the city. Otherwise, we had no Messiah. And finally also, Haggai saying fits no one else. And Luther's twisting this, right? For, ha from, for from Haggai's time on, there was no one who might with the slightest plausibility be called the Kemdath of all the Gentiles. Their delight and consolation 
except this Jesus Christ alone. For 1,500 years, the Gentiles have found their comfort, joy, and delight in him. As we perceive clearly, and as the Jews confirm with their cursing to the present day. For why do they curse us? Solely because we confess, praise, and allowed this Jesus, the true Messiah, as our consolation, joy, and delight, from whom we win, not departed or separated by weal or woe, in whom and for whom he will confidently and willingly live and die. And the more the Jews, Turks, and other foes revile and defame him, the more firmly we will cling to him and the dearer we will be to him, as he says, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. All praise and thanks, glory and honor be to him, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one true and veritable God. Amen. Luther concludes the last paragraph of his essay. So long an essay, and now we see why he wrote this essay. So long an essay, dear sir and good friend, you have elicited from me with your booklet in which a Jew demonstrates his skill in debate with an absent Christian. He would not, thank God, do this in my presence. My essay, I hope, will furnish a Christian who in any case has no desire to become a Jew. As we saw at the beginning of this essay, Jews were proselytizing from among Christians at this time. With enough material not only to defend himself against the blind, venomous Jews, but also to become the foe of the Jews' malice, lying, and cursing, and to understand not only that their belief is false, but that they are surely possessed by all devils. May Christ, our dear Lord, convert them mercifully yeah, to ashes. That's what Christians should pray for. And preserve us steadfastly and immovably in the knowledge of him, which is eternal life. Amen. We've already addressed the errors which Luther had made here at length, notably with trying to say that Christ is the Kemdath of the nations. Probably at far too much length. Luther needs to be credited for his steadfast faith in Christ and the scriptures that he did understand. Apart from all of his poor interpretations of scripture because he could not possibly identify the parties of the covenants properly. He couldn't do it. He didn't have it. He, it was not the will of God at that time. Luther also needs to be credited for his courage in standing against both Jew and Pope. And actually, they were two arms of the same dragon anyway. In Martin Luther, Yahweh God gets the glory because the truth of his word is made manifest. 
that his sheep would indeed hear his voice, even when those sheep errantly think that they are goats. True Christians need to understand what Luther had right to correct what he did wrong. And, as the Apostle James said, I think in chapter 5 of his epistle, resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sadly, most of Luther's churchmen today are worshiping the devil. They should have followed Luther instead. Even with all Luther's errors, if German Protestantism had followed Luther, they'd be a hell of a lot better off today than they are now. Yahweh willing, we will have more and different things to present, which are by and about Martin Luther in the months to come. Among other things, we hope soon to present a portrait of Luther's life and also a portrayal of post-Luther Germany in the days before the Thirty Years' War. I don't know when, but soon, I hope, Yahweh willing, to start presenting my series of essays on German origins, because the Germans certainly are of the children of Israel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I will be here next week, Friday night, 1 Corinthians, part 16, I think. Something like that. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. Good night.